Turn to Revelation chapter 11. Thank you, choir and orchestra. As we continue our messages in Revelation, we're looking at the last half of this chapter. And let me just start out with our title. The kingdom really does come someday. And the kingdom really does come. There is a time in the future when the doom of Satan and the beast and the false prophet, the trinity of evil, are sealed. And the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ does come. Revelation 11, begin reading in verse 15. Seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become. It is as if it is already done. Have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O, o Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now from the time that Titus besieged Jerusalem in AD 70 and conquered her, Israel as a nation, as a nation, no longer remained an entity on this earth. And the Jewish people were scattered all over the world in fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy that one day God would reclaim them from all the nations of the earth. And he did that in 1948. But from that time, from the time of the fall of the Holy Spirit and the fall then later of Jerusalem, this has been the church age. Israel has been scattered. 1948, there was a political entity called Israel that was regathered. But spiritual Israel is not yet regathered. And the prophecy tells us that in the future, and it can't be far off during this great period of intense seven years of tribulation, in the middle of that period, when the chastening of Israel is done, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, then the tide is turned in the middle of that time, and Israel begins spiritually to turn back to the Lord. And then at the end of that second three and a half years, at the end of that seven years, the Lord Jesus Christ comes in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, sets his kingdom on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is split. There's a battle of Armageddon because, the, listen, in spite of all the peace treaties signed with Jordan, this peace treaty with Egypt, the nations of the earth will still gather against the people of God. Christ will come, judge the nations, put an end to the war, the battle of Armageddon, set up his kingdom and rule and reign. And from this point right here, Revelation 11 on, 
that is sealed. The great usurper, the great interloper, Satan, who is called by the Lord Jesus Christ, the the prince of the power of this world, his doom is sealed. And now we know that Christ definitely has turned his face towards his return and set up, will set up his kingdom. And that is why in verse 15, when the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, they say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the portion to which Handel turned when he wrote his great Messiah. He said, I want in this, in the singing of the Messiah, I want the world to know that the doom of Satan and the beast and the false prophet is sealed and that Christ very definitely will set up his kingdom and will rule and reign. Psalm 2 said of the Messiah, ask of thee and I shall give thee the nations for an inheritance. That's going to be fulfilled in this time. And then worship breaks out in heaven in verse 16. When the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and began to worship God saying, we give you thanks. And then we see heavenly worship. Now, I like to focus in this passage on the truth that when things on earth happen, the worship of heaven reflects the reality of earth. Now, let me say that one more time. I want you to get that clear. When things on earth happen, according to God's holy purposes, the worship of heaven reflects the reality of things on earth when God's purposes are being fulfilled. We like to say that worship is worthship, ascribing to God the character that is due him, praising him for who he is. But listen to me now, the book of Revelation teaches us that worship is even more than that. It's just more than reciting who God is. Worship is coming together to give praise that what has been determined in heaven shall come to pass on earth. And in heaven, it is that what has been determined in the eternal counsels of God is coming to pass on earth. So when there is worship in heaven, it is celebrating that God's will is being done on earth. Now, wait a minute. Think of that. Every time we worship in this place, we are celebrating the eternal decrees and purposes of God that they shall come to pass, that they have been settled in heaven. That's what worship is about. It's not just singing about something that makes us romantically uh, 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 sensitive in our memory. It's not just about touching emotion. Worship is about getting together and celebrating what God has absolutely determined shall take place. That's what worship is. Do you remember what, what the New Testament said? There is what in heaven over one sinner that repents. Every time a sinner repents on, on earth, there is joy where? In heaven. All heaven resounds. Now, listen to my statement again. The worship of heaven reflects what God is doing when he's accomplishing his purpose on earth. Do you understand that? 
And when a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. Tim and Becky, our, our daughter and son-in-law who uh, serve a church down in South Carolina, went to a youth conference. So Shirley and Joyce Moody went down to pick up all the children. Boy, aren't you glad God gives children to, to you when you're young. You know, there's a reason why it's hard to have kids after you're 45. You lose your zing, and you can't chase them as good as you could when you were 20. Amen? How many of you have found that out already? <laughs> Amen. Well, when the little girls met Joyce Moody, all they knew, they never heard the name Joyce. You know what they called her? They called her Rejoice. <laughs> hey, Rejoice. <laughs> I had to get straightened out. That's what heaven does when a sinner repents. Heaven rejoices. All the angels sing. All heaven breaks out in rejoicing when a sinner repents. Rejoice. Do you remember when... Christ was born, the heavens opened up and the angels sang. Why did they sing? Do you know why they sang in that Bethlehem's field? Because the other angels were singing in heaven. Christ had come. Do you remember what Peter said when he talked about the sufferings of Christ? He said, these are things that angels desire to look into. I'm convinced that as our Lord Jesus was hanging on a cross, all the angels of heaven that were, are worshiping God were looking down and singing back to God that his purposes were being accomplished because his son was going to the cross and the prince of the world had tried to keep Christ from getting to the cross and prematurely destroy him. There are four things in this text which tell us about the worship of heaven. The first is confession. Worship is always confession. It is confession on earth, and it is confession in heaven, verse 15. When the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices, and here's what the voices said. As they worship God, knowing that the tide has turned, the usurper will be cast out, and now Israel will turn. But God is trying to accomplish his will with his people. Israel will turn back to God, and then Christ will come in power and glory on clouds and set up his kingdom. They said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when I say confession, you immediately think about confessing sin. But confession in the worship of heaven, and for most of the years of Christian worship, confession is more than confessing sin. Now, the word, the Greek word normally translates homologeos, which means same word to say the same word. When I confess my sin, I say about myself what God already knows is true, that I've sinned. But there's something much richer in confession. Christian worship ought always to have confession not about sin, but about truth. I come to worship to confess truth. And in heaven, worship confesses truth. We don't say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, but we confess truth when we sing the great hymns, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's a confession. We say we're not a confessional church, but Baptists have for years confessed what they believed in what we call not creeds, but confessions. 
confessions. I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We Baptists ought not to lose this side of our worship. I come to worship God so that I can confess what I believe about God. That's why I've come today. I'm confessing when I sing. I'm confessing when I stand up and say, lift high the banner of Christ. I'm confessing. And confession ought to be a part of all worship. You haven't worshiped until you have confessed again. When the early church formed, the early church came out of synagogues. And the Jewish Talmudic law allowed that wherever there were 10 male Jews, you could establish a synagogue. And in the synagogue, they worshiped. And when the early Christians were saved and still mainly Jews, they went to the synagogues to worship. Where did Paul preach? In almost every city. He went to the synagogue. It was the only place he knew to go to for worship. And so when he would go to the synagogues, early on, they would confess every Sunday, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, my Messiah. But as the church got less and less Jewish and more and more Gentile, the Gentiles were, hadn't been looking for a Messiah. So Yeshua HaMashiach didn't have much meaning. And they began to confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that was their confession in the early biblical church. Every Sunday, they would get together and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that was their confessional. That was the way they confessed. And then as the church got a little bit more developed, by the time you got to the first century, the church had developed little statements of confession. In fact, you can see one of those in 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, how that God was manifest in the flesh. And then he recites what had become a little liturgy. It was a confession of faith that he was manifested in the flesh. He, was, he suffered, he died, was raised up and ascended. That was a confession. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. He's speaking part of a little confession. But Christians have always given confession. And that is a part of why we come to worship. They often develop the confession around the baptismal formulas by the year 100 A.D. Here was a little baptismal formula which Justin Martyr had put together. And uh, they, they wanted to make sure that everybody was baptized, so they baptized them three, three times. And each time you baptized them, a, a new convert, you had a confession. Here was the confession. Dost thou believe in God the Father Almighty? And the candidate would say, I believe. And then they would put them under. Dost thou believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, crucified in the days of Pontius Pilate, and died and was buried, and rose the third day, living from the dead, and ascended into the heavens, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And the candidate would say, I believe. And they would baptize him another time. Dost thou believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And the candidate would say, I believe. And they would baptize him the third time. Can you imagine baptizing 35 people in one service? I mean, it'd be a 19-hour service by the time they got through with all that confession. But Christianity has always been confession. The other day in my journal, I wrote down six things that are reasons why I worship. Can I share those with you? 
And one revolves around this truth. First, I come every Lord's Day to worship. If I were retired and living at 536 West Wind Drive, I don't know who the next preacher of this church is going to be, but I, I know preachers say you ought to get away and leave him alone. Let him establish himself. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to run away to Timbuktu somewhere for a year. But I'm going to come back every Sunday because I believe even retired preachers ought to worship. Amen? So you're going to see me sitting on that back row. I don't know. If I can walk here, I'm going to be here. First, I worship because I want to bear witness against paganism. I come on this Lord's Day to say, I'm not going with the flow of the rest of the world. I believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's more to life than money and more to life than pleasure. Men shall not live by bread alone. That's one reason why I come to worship. Amen. Secondly, I come to worship to bear witness to the resurrection. That's why I come every Sunday. If Christ were not alive, I would ask you as a Christian to come just once and confess him once. But that's why we come every seven days, once a week. Because we testify by our continued coming that he is alive. And he is living. And I'm not serving a dead savior Entombed somewhere. He's living and every week I come to say to the whole world, you can go mow your lawn if you want to on Sunday. I'm going to church. I want the world to know that I belong to Jesus Christ and he's alive. You know the third reason why I worship every week? Because I want to practice familyhood. I come to this church as a testimony that I belong to the family of God. And I belong to this expression of the family of God. And somewhere on these grounds today, somebody needs me who is in the family. That's why I come to church. I don't care if you got a lousy preacher. I'm coming to church. I don't care if you got a lousy choir. I'm coming to church. Why? Because I'm coming to be with the family of God. And today, somebody here needs you. And somebody here needs me. And that's why we are told in Hebrews 10, 24, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Television preachers won't cut it by themselves. Now go ahead and say amen. 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 Fourth, I come to worship to fellowship in the word. I come to fellowship in the word of God which produces a sense of the presence of Christ. Now, do you know why the great Reformation leaders talked about the public declaration of the word producing the presence of Christ? I'll tell you why. Faith cometh by what, class? Hearing. And hearing comes by the what? Now, remember that. Faith doesn't come from the word. Faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing from what, what must we hear? When I hear the word of God, 
When a deaf person takes in the truth of God into his heart, and the Holy Spirit applies that to the heart, that whatever happens spiritually inside, when the Word of God convicts me, instructs me, encourages me, excites me, pleases me, favors me, that is the way God manifests His presence in worship. That is why the Reformers talked about the presence of Christ in worship. It is hearing the Word of God and applying it, and it does something that makes me aware of the presence of God. That's the way God shows us His presence, in conviction, in joy, in excitement, in encouragement. Fifth, I worship so that I might continue the ordinances. I come every Sunday so that we can keep up baptism and keep up the Lord's Supper, and keep up giving, which is an ordinance. If I did not believe that Jesus and Paul had agreed that we should practice the ordinances, and what did Paul say? Till he come. Till he come. I come to worship so that I can keep alive the ordinances of God which are 2,000 years old and have their roots in that which is 7,000 years older perhaps. So every Sunday when I come to church, I come to testify that I'm a believer and I want to see baptism continue and I want the Lord's Supper to continue and I want Christian giving to continue. I come so that I can be a part of the historical stream of what God is doing to keep alive the symbols that remind us of the reality of Christ. Sixth, I come to worship every week so that I can affirm God's control. I affirm God's control. I walk in this building, which is dedicated to the house as a house of God. I walk into this building to let everybody know that I don't care what happens to the world and the pollsters and the news, but every Sunday when I walk in here, I am saying to the world, to God, to anybody who cares to watch me, I believe my God is in control of this world. I'm confessing that he's got it in his hand, and I'm not afraid. That's what worship is about. And it's coming again and again and again and again that does something when I confess over and over and over again. He keeps revealing more and more to me about himself. And I reveal about myself when I come to worship. The other day we were sitting in a little restaurant and the waitress was working so hard you know, there are 20% restaurants, 15% restaurants, and 10% restaurants. How many of you know what I mean by a 15% restaurant and a 20%? That's the tip expected. This was a 15%er. McDonald's is a 0% restaurant. And I'm not going to tell you which ones are 10 and 15 and 20, but you know what they are. You go into some restaurants, and you know what's strange is the higher the cost of the meal, the higher the percentage. Do you know, thank God, there's no inflation in God's economy. The tithe has remained 10% forever. Amen? <laughs> but have you noticed how percentages for tipping waitresses have crept up? And there are 10% restaurants and 15%. Well, you, you go back and think about that. We were in a 15%er the other night. And as she, she had this tray up like this. Now, sitting down, even a short waitress, when she puts a tray up like that, you can't see what's there. You don't see what's there until somebody bumps her 
or she slips, and then you see what's on that tray. And as she came around the curve, she stepped on some water on the floor, and down she went. I mean, she took a hard fall sprawl. This is a 15% sprawl. Actually, because of the fall, we tipped 18% that night. I think 3% ought to be enough to assuage some of the pain. And then that we found out it was our food that went sprawling everywhere. It was the fall that revealed whose food was on that table. You know, I think about that sometimes when I walk in this church. And I look at this crowd and I wonder, there's Chris over there. I wonder if she's had a hard time this week. I look over there and there's Sam. Wrote, I wonder if Sam's had a hard time. You know, that's why I go to church every Sunday. I never know when there's going to be a slip, when there's going to be a bump, and the, something is going to be revealed about me. And, 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 and that's when I get the best revelation about God is when I come hungry, I come hurting, I come passionate, I come into this church, and my whole life has been fouled up all this week, and suddenly I've been bumped, and now I can see what it is God has had on the plate serving me and I've missed it because I haven't been bumped. Nothing is revealed to me. Why? And sometimes I think you and I have had it too easy. We've got so many safety nets. We never get bumped. We never have a slip. We never have a fall. And we come to church and we go through motions and there's nothing real and there's nothing, there, there's nothing that touches us because we haven't been bumped lately. But when you come week after week, you're always ready when the bump comes. Do you understand? God reveals himself. Secondly, in this text, we see adoration. There's great adoration in verse 16. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and they worshiped God. Isn't this a beautiful phrase? Look at what they say. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. In all worship, there is thanks and adoration. Now, the worship style of the synagogue from which our worship originated was threefold. In a Jewish synagogue, the synagogue was considered, you know, the Hebrew Beth, Bet, Beth is house. Uh, the synagogue was a Bethah Knesset. It was a house of assembly. And the synagogue was a Bethah Midrash. It was a house of teaching. Midrash is one. Midrashim are the teachings. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for, for teaching. So the synagogue was a house of assembly and a house of teaching, but it was also a Bethah Tifala, a house of prayer, place to pray. People say to me, why do you do things like give Bibles away to children We've come to worship. We want another choir number. Or let's read a responsive reading. Or let's play the orchestra another time. Now, folks, let me remind you. Out of our tradition of worship, we are a Bethah Knesset. The synagogue was a Bethah Knesset. It was a house of assembly. And it's where you did family things. I think it's a valuable thing to take a first grader up here and honor him by giving him a Bible. Amen. I think that is one of the expressions of the fact that we are a Bethlehem Knesset. We are a house of assembly. That's why we tell you some of the things we tell you. That's why we give you opportunities for service. 
Worship is not all a funeral music with pale lights flashing off the ceiling. Worship is coming together and, 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 uh, and honoring each other. It's recognizing somebody who's been married for 106 years. God bless them. They need two blue ribbons. And uh, it's, it's doing all those, all those other things we do. People say, well, why do we do that? We're just wasting time. That's not worship. Oh, you're mistaken. In the historical tradition of Christian worship, we are a Bethah Knesset and a Bethah Midrash and a Bethah Tifla, but we are a house of prayer. Isaiah said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is a place to pray. In the early synagogue worship, they would come in and start by acknowledging God. And then they would say the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And whenever they would get to one, the whole congregation would stop. Jews believed in the unity of God so much. And the leader would say, blessed be the name of the Lord God of Israel. Whenever they said one, God is one. But then much of the worship, in fact, for most of the early church synagogue period, 18 people were selected to pray in every synagogue service. Now, there's a, uh, there's a historical reason. I won't go into it all right now because you don't have time. In fact, I'm barely going to have time for what I do have time for. But... Uh, uh, there are reasons. 18 people were selected to pray, and 18 persons would come and pray in the worship. Prayer and adoration of the Father through prayer is an integral part of what we do. Notice what they said. Verse 17. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. But it's stronger than that in the Greek. He is the one who is who was and is and is now taking over. That's the real translation of that. God's kingdom is now set. He's ready to set up his kingdom. And you know, in the book of Revelation already, twice in heaven, we've heard this, blessed be the one who was and is and is to come. But now it's was and is and has already set up his kingdom and is just ready to implement it. I'll tell you, if you got good is's, you'll have good was's. Was is the past, is is the now. And the world doesn't have much is to come. But as Christians, we've got the blood taking care of our was's and the spirit directing us in our is's. <laughs> and we got the assurance of the triumphant Christ to take care of our is to comes. And I come to worship every week so that I might spend time in just adoration. I do it. When Ann was singing, I, I just sat there. I just wanted to think about Jesus when she was singing that song. There is a Savior. Think about him. When we sang that hymn, number one, I just wanted to sit there in adoration. When Guy was leading us in prayer, I thought, I started analyzing how he was praying. And I thought, of course, stop that. I thought, oh, you know, when he started that invocation, he said, Father, this is the day that the hour has been changed back or whatever he said, something. I thought, why is he doing that? <laughs> and then I saw where he was going in his prayer. And I thought, thank you, Lord. You really are. And that's what he was saying. You really are the God of the times and the God of the seasons. And you give us time. What did you think when he prayed that, huh? Adoration and prayer 
significant. I, I love what one author said. He said he liked the rule of six. Somebody asked him how he got so much writing done. He said it was a rule of six. Six days a week, he spent so many hours a day writing. And he said, it's amazing if you just discipline yourself to write the same amount of time every day, what you can do in six days a week. And the rule of six is the rule of regularity. And that's why I come to the house of God. I need to come so that I can adore him and I can give thanks to him. And I do it on a regular basis by making worship a habit of my life. For in heaven, when things happen on earth, when things change, when God begins to take over, all heaven sings and shouts and gives adoration and praise which is what we ought to be doing down here on earth. Adoration and praise to the one who was and is and is now setting his kingdom for the future. I like what John Ruskin said. John Ruskin said that the highest reward for man's toil is not what he gets for it, but what he becomes by it. And the highest reward of worship is not what you get out of it, but what you become by worshiping on a week-to-week -week basis. Thirdly, you see affirmation in verses 17 and 18. Because you have taken your great power and reign, verse 18, the nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, in the worship of heaven, they give affirmation to the control and the sovereignty of God. And they testify in heaven in the worship that the nations opposed to God and his plan for his people Israel, those who were incited by the fury of the dragon in chapter 12, have brought wrath upon God's people and now God's going to bring wrath back upon them. This in turn God shows God is bringing his wrath. It is the season, the kairos, the time of the dead. The season has come. And there are three things that they give affirmation in heaven about that will take place on earth. And here they are. Number one, there is the judgment of the dead. Verse 18, the time of the dead that they should be judged. Secondly, there is assured now the reward of the righteous. In the next phrase, you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who reverence your name. And thirdly, there's the destruction of the destroyers. That's what it means for Christ to take hold of the kingdom and set in order the events which will lead now to his second coming in power and glory. He does three things. Now listen to me. Let me comment briefly on each one of those, and I must move on and close. The judgment of the dead... Now, always remember there are two judgments of the dead. Hold your hand here and turn back to John chapter 5. John 5, 29. Do not marvel, Jesus said in verse 28 at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Now, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection will happen in sections. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, the resurrection under life is in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Christ comes for the church. And we've already looked at that passage. And the Bible says the dead in Christ shall be raised. Then in 1 Corinthians 3, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive our rewards. But in Revelation... There is the judgment of the unrighteous in Revelation 20 
and that's what the heaven's worship is referring to. In Revelation 20:11, I saw a great white throne. Him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God. And the, uh, book was the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now look at this. And the dead were judged according to their works since they rejected Christ. In every age they rejected God's plan of salvation. The unrighteous dead are raised up. The sea in verse 13 give up the dead and they were judged each one according to his works and they were cast into the lake of fire. Verse 15, whoever was not found written in the book of life. He is saying the judgment of the dead is set in order. Secondly, the reward of the righteous. Now the righteous are rewarded ultimately in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was coming down the new Jerusalem out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, be his people. God will be their God. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And finally, the third thing he gives prophecy of is that when Christ's kingdom comes, he'll destroy the destroyers. And in chapter 20, verse 10, the scripture is very, very plain. Chapter 20, verse 10, we'll come to it again. But the devil who deceived those on the earth was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, the triumvirate of evil. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So in heaven they gave affirmation to what the kingdom meant. On earth, we're to give affirmation that God's in control, His kingdom is coming. There's a sense in which every worship service ought to be a pep rally for Jesus. Praise God, He has triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. I must close. The last thing we see in heaven's worship is the revelation. It's in verse 19. The temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. When John saw all of this, God opened up heaven and gave him a picture of the heavenly temple where the ark was. You know what was in the ark on earth? The, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in two tablets. And God gave him a revelation of what heaven would be like to remind him I am a God of the covenant, and I keep my word. And that's what we do in worship here on this earth. That's what we're to do. We open up the word of God. God doesn't give us a vision every Sunday, but he does give us the word. So we can be reminded of who God is and what God does. And just as John was reminded that God is a covenant-keeping God and the kingdom really does come every Sunday, we're reminded, God is God. Christ is coming. The kingdom of God is in your heart now, but someday Christ will come and rule and reign. That's why we come to worship on earth, because that's what's going on in heaven. That's why we have preaching every Sunday. A young man came up to me and said, 
I want to talk to you sometime. I, I want to know what it is you're yelling about down here. I, I, I don't know. I never envision preaching as yelling, but I guess I do get excited once in a while. I'll try to be very... You would, you'd die if I preached in a monotone. Most of you would be asleep. You're already half asleep. If I preached in a monotone, you'd be the rest of the way asleep. Like the preacher that came up and gave a $20 bill to the preacher. and She said, I've been saving a long time for this. And he said, well, why are you doing this? She said, well, I heard my daddy telling my mama we've never had such a poor preacher. <laughs> but anyway, that's why in every worship we read we preach, we hear the Word of God, God manifests His presence, and we respond. Because just as heaven reflects God's rule on earth, worship on earth ought to reflect God's eternal purposes in heaven. Amen? That's why we have the Word of God. This is not a monologue. Preaching is not a monologue. And it's not a dialogue between you and me. Preaching is a trialogue, <laughs> if there is such a thing. It is the preacher and you and God the Holy Spirit. John Wesley said the Holy Spirit is the minister, the real minister at every service. That's what preaching is. And just as in heaven God opened up and showed John the inner sanctum, on earth we open up the Word of God to reveal something every Sunday to be reminded who God is. The preaching of the Word. That's why we have preaching. I know you laugh at me sometimes about preaching because I think we've always got to have preaching. I want to read you something one of the great Bible students of this age has said. J.I. Packer, James L. Packer, whose book Knowing God is worth reading once every other year. Knowing God. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. Now listen to this carefully. Now I'm not opposed to daily quiet time. I'm not opposed to your personal worship. I'm not saying that, but I want you to listen to this carefully. There is something deeply unnatural and unsatisfying in a situation where the people of God have to rely entirely on personal Bible study for spiritual nourishment because of the lack of effective expository preaching in public worship. He said it's it is unnatural and unsatisfying. He goes on. The New Testament pattern is that public preaching of God's Word, so to speak, is to provide the main meals and constitute the chief means of grace and one's own meditations on Bible truth through the week should come in as ancillary to this as a series of supplementary snacks necessary indeed in their place but never intended to stand alone as a complete diet. Wow. Did you hear what he said? When you miss worship, you miss the main meal. You say, but I have a quiet time. That's a snack of corn chips compared with a steak and potatoes and gravy and green beans and salad and sweet potatoes and yams and jello salad and banana pudding you get here. <laughs> Amen. Listen to what he said about preaching. He said, your personal reflection on truth are like little supplementary snacks. But when the body comes together for the Word of God, that's the main meal. I rest 
my case. <laughs> Amen. I love Jesus. I want our worship here to reflect the God of heaven. I want our singing, our preaching. Don't judge us by just coming once. So, somebody said to me, I came once in your church with this and this and this and this and this and this. Don't judge us once. If I just sat down at one of my grandma's meals, I might have concluded she was a horrible cook. But I ate there so many times, I want to tell you, folks, she was a great cook. Don't judge us by just one Sunday. Don't judge us by one sermon. Don't judge your Sunday school teacher by one lesson. This is a Bethah Knesset. You can fellowship in Sunday school. You can fellowship here. This is a Bethah uh, Midrash. This is where we have teaching from the Word of God so God can reveal Himself. And this is a Bethah Tifala where we can pray and adore God and reflect on earth in our worship what God is doing in heaven. And if you're not saved, then you don't understand about worshiping God because you've got nobody to worship but yourself and the devil. That's why worship is for those who are in God's family. And we invite you to come to know Christ. We want you to know Jesus. He died on the cross. If you'll confess your sin and repent of your sin, you can be saved. Then you'll experience what it means to come in here with your heart down and leave with your heart full. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Speak to each of us about the value of worship. And, oh, God, help us to bend our wills more completely towards you because we have been in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.